Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Today, the series that we're starting is called Chosen. And uh, what we're going to be doing is talking about what it means to be chosen by Jesus. And it's the chosen people are the people that respond to his call to come and follow him. But before we do that, we're going to talk about who it is that does the choosing. The chosen one, Jesus, the Messiah, has chosen you to come and follow him. But before we can talk about what it is to follow him, we've got to talk about who he is. Because I think oftentimes we mistake who Jesus is for whether it's a cultural thing, something we've always been told, something we've just made up in our minds, a version of Jesus that's not really him. It's a mistaken identity. And so we're going to look at that today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into John chapter 1. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your presence, for your son, Jesus. Uh, God, that you would come here and become flesh so that when we talk to you like this, we know there's never anything that we pray to you that you don't understand. You've experienced it. You know what it's like to be tempted. You know what it's like to be tired. You know what it's like to be uh, excited and celebrate and weep at a funeral, and and you've experienced it and betrayed by friends. And uh, just thinking as we were singing that song, it is well, seeing some of my friends that I know are going through a valley with their hands up in the air singing to you, you are worthy. And I pray that we would be different as a result of not just this message, not just these songs, but being in your presence. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we talk about mistaken identity today, I'm interested here. How many of you, whether you've had your identity stolen, somebody tried to steal your identity, somebody thought you were somebody you weren't, you ever had a mistaken identity experience, go ahead and raise your hand, pump your hands up. It's all right. This is significant to the, the amount of people that are in this room. People are looking around like, what? What happened to you? <laughs> The statistics are, uh, in America, about 33% of people experience identity theft. It says, uh, one statistic, someone is a victim to identity theft every 14 seconds. Identity theft cost people in the United States $56 billion just in 2020. The average person loses about $3,500, and usually we think of uh, identity theft just as credit card debt, like somebody steals your credit card, buys something, then you have to you know, argue with the credit card company and maybe you're going to have to pay it off. But there's even more dangerous identity theft that's out there. One of the ones I read about this week was called medical identity theft, where people actually go to the hospital in someone else's name, get procedures done, and then not only do you get billed for that, but that becomes part of your medical record. There was one woman that I read about who had gotten a call from the police because her baby had narcotics in, their, in the baby system. Problem was, she hadn't had a baby. She had had four children, but they were all grown, and so she didn't know why that test would be coming. And after questioning by the authorities and getting some tests, but her medical records are still all messed up. She got the $10,000 bill resolved, but the medical records are still a mess. See, identity theft, it's a unique thing. And, And I remember when I was a kid, I remember one time my dad, so my kids don't think this is actually true, and so you can testify to them about this in the lobby. I'm so old, I existed before even the boomer Facebook social media, all right? And so I, tell, I try to tell them about MySpace. They're like, what are you talking about? If I told them that I existed before the internet, they'd think I rode to school on a dinosaur, all right? So I did, but they won't believe that. And so I talked to them about a time before the internet. I remember my dad came home. He worked for the school board. And I don't know how they did their timesheets or who got access to what, but somebody had taken his social security number and started making purchases in his name. And I remember thinking, that's wild. Like, can't they just see? Like, it's a different person. And as a kid, I had no idea. Now, my life, I don't know what yours is like. I have people trying to steal my identity on a regular basis. I told a friend uh, who lives in a different state the other day, I said, don't you, do you get these calls? And he's like, no, I don't. And I'm like, why is my life so weird? So I don't know if your life's weird like mine. 
but I get calls on a weekly basis. This is the social security department. We'd like to give you some money. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like now I'm just real sarcastic and cynical. He's like, just give us your super private information. So I don't, I give them yours. And so, <clears throat> and that's why a couple of weeks ago, you got a text message from me, some of you, asking for gift cards. Anybody here get that text message? Raise your hand. Yeah, yeah a couple of you. Um, if you send in gift cards, I didn't get them, <laughs> by the way. Uh, and that wasn't me. I'll never ask you for a gift card via text message. I'll do it in the lobby after the service. And my wife loves Target, and so just go over there, and Amazon works great too. But um, no, I, w- I didn't do that. Somebody else is doing that. I had one time uh, a place from Charlotte called and said it was customs, and then I was trafficking drugs through Charlotte, which I thought to myself, that's not like a border. Why would I be doing that? Okay, come get me. And like I hung up the phone. They still haven't come, so I assume it's fake. There's people constantly trying to steal your identity, steal my identity, pretend to be you, pretend to be me. And so the mistaken identity is a normal thing. Or you watch movies and there's often that like, there's a, an evil lookalike or you got a doppelganger in some other city. I read a story this week about a guy, Peter Hamkin, if you want to look it up, who the police showed up at his work, he was a bartender, and arrested him for murder. That's scary. Apparently of a woman in Italy, the problem was he had never even been to Italy. Now the scary part was they had DNA evidence that it was him. And many of us, when we hear that, we're like, well, that's how you solve like cold cases, like DNA evidence, that locks it up. What many of us don't know is in the criminal system, depending on what country you're in and where not, whatnot, they don't test the whole strand of DNA. They just do a segment of it. And it's rare, but it's possible to mistake someone's identity. So Peter got arrested, had an alibi, could prove he had never been to Italy, but the DNA was there. He sat in prison for 20 days while they did a more in-depth DNA analysis and then released him. <laughs> Well, what were those 20 days like, Peter? Sitting there thinking, everyone here says they didn't do it, so my story doesn't sound different. But I know it wasn't me. See, identity being mistaken can be very dangerous. I see some of our medical professionals here in this service, some doctors and nurses, and you can ask them. They have what they call never events. should never have these things happen at the hospital. But they happen sometimes, like the wrong person getting a surgery, the wrong surgery. The wrong leg getting amputated, right and left, like that right now. It happens. It's rare, super rare. Our medical professionals are great, but it happens. What we're talking about today, though, is more dangerous than losing money, more dangerous than losing your freedom, more dangerous than losing a limb, because this has eternal consequences if we're wrong about Jesus. And so John starts his gospel. It's pretty interesting. We've read it. You saw it read in the video. We've read it. Michelle read it for us this morning. Uh, We've read this passage several times. And it's interesting that John starts different than any of the other gospels. The gospels, for those of you who might be new to church or new to studying your Bible, are books that we refer to. It just means the good news about Jesus. The word gospel just means good news. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all different people giving an account of the life and works of Jesus. Why do we need four people to tell the same story? Well, imagine that you were maybe in Briar Creek after church today grabbing lunch, and and as you're over there, uh, you're standing at one of those four-way stops, and there's an accident in the intersection, and there's people at every corner of the intersection. They all saw the same thing from a different perspective. And then when they go to tell their story, depending on who they're telling it to and why they're telling the story in that context, they're going to emphasize different things. And what you see is Mark starts his gospel with the same words that John does in the beginning, but then the next thing he talks about is not creation. What he talks about is Jesus' baptism and then his ministry. And Mark is writing to a fast-paced Roman culture 
And he's telling them about all these miracles that Jesus did and then says, but Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve and use his Roman language and give his life as a ransom for many. And then you go to Luke, and Luke is a doctor. And he's writing an orderly account to a guy named Theophilus who might be a non-believer or a new believer, and he's writing to him, and he's telling him about the compassion and the passion of Jesus. And so it's in Luke we get the story of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke we see Jesus going to the marginalized and the poor. And you've got the story of baby Jesus in the manger in Luke. So you see this humble version of a Savior. And then you go to Matthew, and you get almost the opposite. You've got, it's the same stories and the same truth, but he's showing Jesus as the king. That's why it starts with a royal lineage. And he's, he's talking about he comes from the line of David, and he's writing to Jews. And he's presenting Jesus as the king, the king of the Jews. And then John, he's not writing, to, he's just writing to Jews and Greeks. And he starts different than all of them. And what John gives us is before he starts telling us about Jesus being baptized, walking on water, feeding 5,000 people, or any of those things, it's what oftentimes scholars call the prologue. He gives all the themes that are going to happen in the book in these first 18 verses. It's kind of like if you ever go to see a movie and you watch the trailer ahead of time. On a bad movie, when you watch the trailer, you already know the whole movie. Yep, all right, I've heard all the good jokes, a couple one-liners in there. That guy gets, you know, there's a little drama, and then he gets the girl. And they, okay, that's how that goes. Heard that story a hundred times. Don't need to watch that. Done in 90 seconds. But then sometimes you get a trailer and you go, what? I, how did that happen? I've got to see that. That's what John's showing us here. And so today what we're doing is just laying some groundwork for what's going to come. It's kind of like watching the movie trailer. And so he starts off talking about how Jesus is the Word. In the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1. And what he's doing here is he's showing us this. I'll just tell you ahead of time. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. So when you read this gospel, every account, it's not just a good moral teacher, not an example, not a miracle worker. When Jesus speaks, that's God speaking. So what Jesus thinks, that's what God thinks. So if you want to know, what does God have to say about divorce, political issues, your money, your, your relationships, that's what God has, whatever Jesus said, that's what God has to say because Jesus is God. What is God like? What does he look like? Well, he's a man. He became flesh. So we get to see both things. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What does that mean? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus created everything. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness can't overcome the light, huh? And then John the Baptist stuff that we saw Michelle read, jump down to verse 14. And and the word became flesh. Wasn't always flesh, became flesh, and dwelt. Another way to translate that, some of your Bibles might say tabernacled, pitched his tent among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and listen to this time frame formula, and cried out, this was of he of whom I said, he who comes, before, or comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He came after you, but he was before you. He's talking about John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. He's always existed. He is God. Verse 15. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, like the ocean keeps bringing waves into the shore. Grace and more grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And get this. No one has ever seen God, the only God, 
who is at the Father's side, he, talking about Jesus, has made him known. And so here, Jesus, fully God, transcendent, infinite truth, fully man, intimate, imminent truth. He's both simultaneously fully God, fully man. And what is he doing? Verse 18, he's revealing to you what God is like. You've never seen God? No one's ever seen God. You read these Old Testament accounts where it's like, I saw the Lord, or I want to see your face. And all God will give them is a glimpse of some of his character. It's abounding in love and grace and mercy, wrathful to generation after generation. And so you see these Old Testament, but they never see him. He's invisible. The New Testament says he dwells in unapproachable light, and Jesus came to make him visible. He came to make the invisible God visible. As God, fully God, becoming flesh, that's why we say the incarnation, in the flesh. And so what is this? Here's our one point today. What is this that's happening in this passage? It's this, that Jesus is making the unveiling, unveiling or revealing the identity of God in an unmistakable way. Where you phrase it for those of you who like taking notes. Jesus unveils God's identity with unmistakable clarity. Jesus unveils or reveals God's identity with unmistakable clarity. But we still make mistakes. Why is that? Why, are, why is it that it's so possible for us to get it wrong who Jesus really is? A pastor from a past generation, A.W. Tozer, said that what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if you get this wrong, it's not only dangerous for you, it's dangerous for other people. I remember reading a story one time in a Philip Yancey book. I think it was Finding God in Difficult Places or something like that, if you want to look it up. But in the book, he tells us, it's just like a couple paragraph story of this guy who was in prison, and he seemingly committed an irrational and random crime. One day, they were in the cafeteria. He beat this guy to death, a guy he barely knew. They take him out of the maximum security prison, put him before a judge. He gives a really dry, passionless telling. He does not deny that he murdered this guy. And so this murderer stands there before the judge, and the judge asks a simple question. What was your motive? And the guy went on to say how depressed he was in the prison and how awful life was. In the, and it's like, well, it's a maximum security prison. It's not like a great life. You're right. The judge could get that. He says, but why did you kill somebody else? And the response, oh, man. He said, well, I'm Catholic, and we believe that if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. But if I kill somebody else, I'd have an opportunity to then go confess to the priest so God could forgive me before I died. Well, I'm not saying that that's a true thing, by the way. The Bible doesn't teach that. He apparently learned it in his church. He's got false views on God, false views on murder, false views on forgiveness, false views about the priest. It's dangerous, not only for him, but everybody he comes into contact with. Now, I don't think y'all are going to probably do that. Maybe, but probably not. But what you do might be worse. What we're doing as evangelical church might be worse. There's verses in the New Testament that we're going to look at in this series that we oftentimes just don't even talk about. What do you think about when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23 to the religious people of his day, you'll travel across the ocean to make a convert and you make them twice the son of hell as you are? What? But doesn't God, isn't he just okay with our good effort and we meant well? Maybe the God you believe in, but that might be a mistaken identity from who it is that the Bible's actually talking about. You see, we read this sometimes, and I skimmed over the middle section about John the Baptist and him being a light and a witness, and that also means I skimmed over this verse. These are the people that literally saw Jesus face to face, saw him do miracles, saw him cast out demons. Some of those people said, he's Satan. 
Listen to what it says, John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, so it all belongs to him, yet the world did not know him. Verse 11 is the saddest verse in all of the Gospel of John, maybe the whole Bible. It says this, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How? How does that happen? Why would that happen? And sometimes I think what happens for us is we read the Bible and we're like, they're so dumb. Did you ever read the Old Testament, see the Israelites, and you're like, how is it? Like, we just were looking at Moses in the last series, and Moses leads the people across the Red Sea. You probably know that story. It's the deliverance story of the Old Testament. It's the salvation moment for the nation of Israel. They've been in bondage for 400 years to Egypt. Exodus chapter 14, be still, God will fight for you, parts the waters, on dry ground they walk across, Exodus 14. In Exodus 32, Moses has gone up on the mountain, by the way, on behalf of the people. The people are mad that he's gone too long. <laughs> they don't even have the internet. How crazy is that? They don't have patience either. And so they're upset that Moses has gone too long. So they say to his brother Aaron, will you make us a golden calf? And Aaron, like a doofus, okay, I'll make a golden calf. He's like, he makes a golden calf. And, and what the people say next in Exodus chapter 32 would be funny if it wasn't true. It's so stupid. It's like, are you guys morons? Exodus chapter 32, if you read it, it says this. It's put up on the screen, I think. And when he, talking about Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. So that's the object. That's what they're looking at now. They said, and so this is the sentiment of the nation. They said, these are your gods. First of all, there's only one. Like, you don't know plural and whatever. These are your gods, O Israel, but this next part blows my mind, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's Exodus 32. You just made that God. You came out of the land of Egypt in Exodus 14. That's before 32, FYI. Like, do they lack logic at that time? Are they just total morons? Why would they do such a thing? And the reality is, the issue in John chapter 1 and the issue in Exodus 32 is not a mental issue. It's a heart issue. John 1 will go on to say that the reason why they reject light is because they love darkness. What we're seeing is all through history, people would prefer to worship a God they make rather than the God who made them. And it's still true today. And here's my fear for us as I look at American culture, our current situation, what's happened throughout the American history in our saying that we're a Christian nation, saying that we follow Jesus, is that we have a golden calf Jesus. We've made a Jesus that fits us, that we're willing to worship, and I don't think that's the Jesus of the Bible. And so when Jesus says the way is narrow, oh, that makes sense. If there's a whole bunch of people going around with a bunch of fake Jesuses, but we're going, no, but this many people say on a survey, and there's 33%, and there's that, 98% of people in America believe in God. And it's like, I don't know. Ever, ever seen those surveys and wondered that? And you can jump into any point in time in American history, and you have the same observation, and it's a different Jesus, that the people who claim to follow Jesus are worshiping a different Jesus in each one of those segments of what's happening in culture. You go to our founding fathers, you know, a lot of times on the news or depending on what channel you're watching, they'll say, well, it's a Christian nation and the founding fathers were believers. 
And I know that in school they taught you like what date the tea was spilled into the Boston Harbor and when we declared independence and you know sailed the ocean blue, all that stuff. But we just kind of take it for granted that that's true. Have you ever looked at what those guys actually believed? Because they used the name Jesus, but the Jesus they talk about, he doesn't even resemble the Bible sometimes. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson is a famous story where he would take the Bible and he actually cut and pasted what he liked. He took what he liked about Jesus, put it in his own, he made his own Bible. He didn't even have windows. He's cutting and pasting, like literally cutting and pasting. And then I think, well, we'll just keep doing that as a nation. Now yeah, that is a founding father. It kind of set the trajectory. What the founding fathers really set us up for was pluralism, just so you know. I know I'm offending some of you. That's fine. Well, you can email Pastor Dave and talk about that after the service. But listen to what one historian says. He talks about like Adams and Jefferson, all these different guys, all the founding fathers. And I'm not saying there weren't any genuine believers, but most of them were deists. They believed that God exists. The Jesus they talked about was not Lord, God, and Savior that every knee is going to bow to and every tongue confess. They're talking about a moral example. Do you know why? Because they wanted people to be honest. If you cut down a tree, you better tell people you did it. And work hard and keep going. Because that's who they were. And so they made a Jesus to look like them. And so what ends up happening is they keep shifting who Jesus is throughout culture. And Stephen Nichols, he writes a book called Jesus Made in America. He says this, In the religious marketplace, Jesus will fare as well as the Bible, God, and any of the doctrines of Christianity. They'll all need to be retooled, which is what happens. And so you can jump into different time frames. You jump into the frontier days when you've got evangelists riding on horseback, big tent revivals, bringing people that's more about an experience than it is about doctrine because they're kind of responding to the Puritans who are all about doctrine and their lives were not consistent with the things they said because the way they, they did not love people. The Bible says, if you love God, then you will love people. If you don't love people, you're a liar. The Puritans had incredible doctrine. Go read about how they treated people. And so they're responding to that in the frontier, and they're, very, they're riding across the country. they got guns and Bibles. And so that's where that bumper sticker originally comes from, God and guns. There it is. And so their version of Jesus was a very masculine Jesus because that's who the preachers were, very masculine people. They were presenting a Jesus in their own image, which is interesting because you go to the next time frame, the Victorian age, meek and mild, sweet baby Jesus. There he is. Hair's flowing, cheekbones are high, skin's real light. That was, that was the, that's the victory. I mean, you go through and start, I mean, just read it. You just see what they, what people actually believed in the different time. You go, remember that Jesus, some of you came to Christ in the Jesus movement, the night, late 60s, early 70s, and the Jesus people. Remember what's happening in the time era, Vietnam, and there's hippies. So introduces the hippie Jesus. And God brought some good things. I mean, he was responding to just not a religious hierarchy. Almost a reformation took place at that point, but they lacked doctrine. And it was interesting that Jesus, they started following, make love, not war. The LSD statements, tune in, drop out, you know, whatever the, their statements for Jesus, try Jesus. He's a pacifist. He's love and peace and he's against war. I don't know what they do with passages like this. What about this? Matthew chapter 10, when it says this, do not suppose, this is red letters, by the way, in the Bible, that means Jesus was saying it, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some jobs aren't that hard. A man's enemies. <laughs> a man's enemies will be members of his own household. And so we've got these, this 
version of Jesus. Hippies have a hippie Jesus, and, and the Victorian age, they're refined and soft. They've got a feminine Jesus, and the frontier has a masculine Jesus. Well, what about, and there are people in this room, boomers and consumer Christ. Create our own culture. It's a Christian sub, we got our own coffee shops with t-shirts and testaments instead of breath mints. Like, we got it. And we all kind of hunker down together, and we sell stuff to each other. The world laughs at us. We run out there and tell them about Jesus, but we got to stay away from those scary people out there. And then the millennials come along, and the millennials come up with, instead of that, instead of subculture, let's have a Christ with a cause. But the cause isn't the cross. The cause is getting clean water and feeding people, making sure everybody has clothes, and let's make sure it's a good education. In Jesus' name, which Jesus? And you watch the news today, I don't care if you watch CNN or Fox or whatever the other ones, all of them are, you watch it, you, there's a version of Jesus, they think they're following him. So if you're on the progressive left, it's the compassionate Jesus who's visiting the marginalized. And, is, and so the people who tend to go to that are people who lead their lives with their heart. Not wrong. It's just different than people who lead their lives with their mind. They tend to shift towards the religious right has a Jesus to offer you. He is truth and morality. A lot like Jefferson, by the way. He's a great example. But is he a savior? Is he God? So I've probably effectively offended everyone here today. And a question for you to ask yourself, other than am I going to come back to church next week, is this. If you come into contact with a Jesus different than the one you're following today, are you going to let him change you or are you going to change him? Because, and I'm very limited in my thinking, so I'm not saying this is all there is to say on it, but the best I can come up with when I read this history and I think through these things, I, I think if the Jesus you're following looks so much like you, one of two things has happened. So maybe there's a third thing I haven't thought of, but all I can think of is that either you've reached such a place of spiritual maturity that Jesus transformed you to be like him, or you're so deceived that you've made Jesus to look like you. I don't know. I don't know what's happening in your heart. But when we come into contact with Jesus, if that's not the Jesus you follow, you're in trouble, according to the Bible. Jesus says there's going to be a day, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22, 23, when people stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, did we not and did a bunch of stuff? And he says, I don't know you. They're following a different Jesus? What was going on with that? But it's going to be a lot of people. And so we do funerals, and all the funerals, if somebody went to church, they're in heaven, they got their wings, something happened. That's not what Jesus says. Most of those people are burning in eternal torment. You can follow that, Jesus? John wants to make it real clear before you start reading about water to wine, just because you like wine doesn't mean you're going to like Jesus. Before you start walking on water, feeding 5,000, who are we talking about? First, he says he's the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus himself says that he is the Alpha and the Omega. John writes another book, it's at the end of the Bible, later in his life, when he's being persecuted for following Jesus. It's Revelation chapter 22. These are red letters. It says, Jesus, look, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. I'll give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There are a lot of names for Jesus in the Bible. 198, according to one concordance I looked at. I didn't count on myself. 198 names. 
when I meet people, I'm looking at one right now. When I meet people that have multiple names, I always go, what's up with that guy? You in the CIA, you stealing people's identities. No, I'm not giving you a gift card. Like, what's going on? But you know, there's a story. With Jesus, he's not shady. There's no, see, names carry meaning. It's not just a title. Names carry meaning. And you got 198 names for Jesus. Jesus is complex. It's one of the reasons why we get so confused about him. Because we hone in on the things that we like and we disregard the things we don't. We're, we're smart enough, most of us, socially and relationally, to not adopt the Thomas Jefferson, I'm going to cut and paste Jesus. Instead, we ignore the stuff we don't like and we explain away the verses that don't fit our paradigm. Jesus is going, I'm all of these things. If you only take pieces of it's a really high likelihood you're going to stand before him one day and say, I don't know you. No, he's saying, John's saying here, he's the word. Why does he choose the word? Out of all the titles he could pick. And as you just walk through John chapter 1, we're not going to cover every verse in John chapter 1, even in this whole series. There are seven or eight titles of Jesus just in John chapter 1. If you, if you look at it, you see he's the, he's the word. We just read that. Light and life, those are the next verses. Is the Son of God, verse 14, 15, we're going to read that. The Lamb of God, John the Baptist is going to call him that. Verse 29 through 34. He's the Messiah. We're going to look at that next week. Verses 35 through 42. The King of Israel, the Son of Man. That's just John chapter 1. And John, the Gospel of John, there's seven different I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection life. I am the way, the truth, the life. Those are all names of Jesus. So why here does he pick the word? Out of all the names he can pick, he picks the word. And you saw, if you've seen the episode that we showed a little clip from, in the Chosen streaming series. There's a conversation that Jesus has with John when he's picking what scripture he's gonna read at that reading that was there. And John tells Jesus, the Greeks believe that word means creation. Jesus says, I like that, as if Jesus didn't know. Some people argue that John chose the word because Hebrews, uh, Hebrews had a tradition that they couldn't say the name Yahweh out loud out of reverence for God, because he's different, he's transcendent, he's other than them, and so that, that was a way for them to worship, was to not say the name Yahweh, and so they would say another Hebrew word, which meant the word, when they're talking about God. Stoics thought that, that, that the word was what everything came out of, everything flowed from the word. John picks this word because not any of those things, although he's writing to all those people, because of what the Bible says about him. The Word was the power at the beginning that created all things, and the Word is God, he says. In the beginning was the Word, and so he's saying that Christ was preexistent. Before anything was, Jesus was. And the Word was with God. That word with is important. You can underline that. It can be translated toward. And what's probably being alluded to by John there is that the Father and the Son were in a face-to-face, intimate relationship for all of eternity. That means that God didn't create you because he was lonely. But he did create everything, and you are part of that creation, he says next. And the word was God, just in case you're wondering, was the word like something floating around by God? No, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so he made everything. So there's no doubt what's being talked about here in John. John's referring back to Genesis chapter 1. And Genesis chapter 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, or some translations say void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, so his speaking, his word is where creation came from. Let there be light. And there was light. What does it mean that Jesus is the creator? 
Well, John has a revelation in the book of Revelation where he's revealing who God is. It gives us our best glimpse of what heaven is like in all of the Bible. Revelation chapter 4 and 5. It's like the gates are open for a second. We get to peek in, and there's this song being sung to Jesus. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. It says, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why? What's the reason? For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. So it was your desire that I exist. There's nothing made that wasn't made by him. It's his desire that you exist. You have your being. He created you for a reason. And as much as we like to make him in our image, he created you in his so that he would receive glory from your life. Often the American version of Jesus is supposed to come alongside us and make our best life now. Help us experience whatever dreams we have. And we treat him like he's coming alongside us to help us out. The reality is we're supposed to follow him. And we were created for him. In fact, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, you guys can pop that verse up if you want. I'll just paraphrase it for you. It says that he created everything and everything was created not just by him but for him. That's the Apostle Paul writing and probably coming a comment off of John chapter 1. And he's saying here, yeah, he created everything, but let's not forget there's a reason why it was all created, that you were created for his glory. But when you live like he's supposed to exist for your glory, it's like, have you ever misused a tool? Like maybe you didn't have the right tool in the moment, so you just try to use something that wasn't meant to be used a certain way? Or have you ever heard this statement before? If all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Ever heard that? I was thinking... Yeah, just last night, I was like, what would that really look like if you started treating every problem in your life like this could solve it? And, and my wife was out of town. She's uh, at a tournament with one of my daughters, and so I had to make dinner. They got to get their veggies, some canned food out. What if I had to open a can with this? You think I can even do it? You don't think I can do it? I think I can do it. Here. There we go. Some. There we go. We can have some beans afterwards. The beans, yeah, beans afterwards. It's awesome. Solve that problem. In fact little fact for you. My kids make fun of me because I know lots of random facts. Reading for you, by the way, not just because I'm interested in all this stuff. Did you know that canned food was invented about 50 to 60 years before anything that would even resemble something like this, a can opener? It was 48 years before we used something with blades. The original canned food, the instructions on it actually read, chisel and hammer. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think so. So after you eat the meal, you're going to have some dirty dishes. What do you do about that problem? There you go. If all you got the hammer, every problem's a nail. Oh, when I did that, something popped up top, and I got, now I got a light bulb out. What am I going to do about that? Got to get rid of that. Some, if I didn't offend you earlier in the message, this will get you. Pumpkin season. This is not a pumpkin spice latte. But what if it's like, I got to carve a pumpkin. Boom, boom, eyeballs. I can do that. Hey, this is working. There we go. Give him a little mouth. There we go. There we go. Ah. First service, I cut myself with a plate. That's why I put the glove on the second service. But you want to talk about lack of compassion. Our worship pastor, Bryce, came up to me and goes, I expect no less effort in the second service. I was bleeding. I was hiding back here, trying to drain blood back behind the Bible, not to distract people. So never say we're a church, doesn't talk about the blood. There it is. But, but the point, I mean, you can go through life using a hammer to try and fix everything, and you can go through your life, living your life like it's all about you. 
probably going to create a mess, might even be dangerous for other people and yourself. It's not what it was designed for. Your life wasn't designed for you. Your life was designed to be lived for all things were created by him and for him. You are made to worship him. And if you don't, he says, even the rocks will cry out. He's going to get his praise. And it's not just some obligatory, all right, I got to fall in line now. Well, tell me some good fact that I can memorize and I'll say nice things about Jesus because it's what I'm made for. No. It's supposed to be that you're so delighted at it, you're enjoying him. When you enjoy something, you praise it, whether it's a TV show or a meal or another person. And when it's the creator and that's what you were designed for and you start to actually enjoy, taste and see that he is good, you experience him, you don't just believe facts about him, especially facts you've made up as you've tried to make him, but you realize that he is your maker and whether you like something or not, he is right and you're not. Then you start to overflow with praise. That's what you're made for. So do you, do you enjoy him? And if he showed up here today, would you recognize him? That's a significant question. Talk about mistaken identity. If the Jesus of the Bible came to your church, would we even know? Because we can bash on the Pharisees all day long. They knew the Bible. They missed Jesus. And Jesus even said to them, John chapter 5, we'll get to this. You think, because <laughs> you know the scriptures. The scriptures are about me, and you don't know me. And he tells them, your father is the devil. They would have never affirmed that on a doctrinal statement. But that's what their lives said. Not only is he the word, it says that he is the light and life. I'm going to put those two titles together because, because when you read John, you see them together. So it's not just for the sake of time in our message, although that's true too. But we're going to put them together because light and life are almost always together. It says in verse 4, in him was life. God is the God of life. We know that. And the life was the light of men. And we know that light contrasts darkness all throughout the Bible. That light is often portrayed as truth and darkness is deception. That, that light brings uh, insights where darkness hides things. It says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so here's Jesus, not only the word, but he's the light and the life and he's come into a world of death and darkness. And we still live in a world of death and darkness. There's a lot of deception out there. We talk about darkness and death. We don't like to acknowledge it, but we live in a world of death. Some of you read your Bible regularly. That's awesome. You should do that. How many of you read the genealogies? <laughs> Anybody? Why do we skim past? It's such hard names. I get it. It can be boring. I think one of the reasons we skim past it is because we don't like the, what it's actually teaching us. It's all after Genesis 3 when we were promised if sin enters the world, then there's death. All the genealogies read the same way. Hard name begat hard name. <laughs> and then they died. So so-and-so begat so-and-so, and they died. And then the person who was just begat... They died. So that person was born, and they had, and then it was Seth, and then it was so-and-so, and then it was David, and, it was, and they died, and they died, and they died, and we don't like death. If you want evidence of that, and I'm not saying it's morally right or wrong, it's just an observation of our culture as America. When's the last time you went to a funeral? I bet you haven't, because we call it a celebration of life. Oh, really? I thought we were gathering because somebody died. Why don't we call it a moment of mourning, a gathering of grief? Why do we put the person in nice clothes and then paint them up to look better than maybe they've ever looked before and then we tell great stories about them and we laugh and then go have lunch and we're, we put them in a fancy box? We've like so sanitized death. We don't want to deal with it. The Bible says, Hebrews chapter 9, we saw this in our last series, it's appointed for man to die. And after that comes judgment. Judgment? We don't want to talk about that. We don't even want to talk about death. Into a world of death, the God of life. That's who Jesus is. 
He is light, and many people don't like light because it reveals things either they don't want to deal with, they don't want to be true, or they don't want to change. Jesus says this in one teaching to his disciples. Jesus said to them, John chapter 12, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. A lot of us don't want to be revealed that we're going the wrong direction, and in order to do anything right, we've got to turn to Jesus. Pride. Acknowledging that we're wrong. So we like darkness. The other day at our house, um, the water wasn't, it was kind of, the, we've got this filter in our house, it gets too complicated to explain all the details. The water had a problem. The only way for me to fix the water problem in our house was to go to the crawl space. The crawl space, I, to get to, I have to go to the outside of the house, and it was dark outside, and I realized I had to fix it. I wanted to get it over with real quick. I didn't even put shoes on. I just went outside. Oh, I forgot a flashlight, whatever. Once I get into the crawl space, once I get the comm open on the little door there uh, in the dark, and then I will uh, be able to turn the light on that's underneath the house. So I'm walking over there. I get next to the comm, and then I feel something under my feet. It's wet and slimy, and it starts to move. And I want to scream like a little girl, ah! like dancing. But I thought, what if somebody's watching? So I go, whoa, whoa, what was that? Open this real quick. Like, get in there. And then I was like, was that a snake? Maybe it was just a slug. Frog? I don't know. I didn't even want to know. Then I'll never go out there again. We're in bad water forever. Sorry. <laughs> People like the darkness. The light reveals oftentimes things we don't like. Sometimes we like the lies. And we like where we're headed. That's why they rejected Jesus. It wasn't because they didn't know. And that's important for you to know, even those of you who want to walk in the light and you're trying to share Jesus with others. A lot of times, American evangelicalism, we treat it like if you just knew the truth. If I just told, I could tell you in a different way. I've got to show you how dumb you are. Let me reveal to you your own. No, they know. Most people in America know the truth. They need to see the light. A supernatural work has to take place in their hearts. You didn't turn to Jesus because you were smarter than them. God grabbed your heart, and you wanted something more. That's what needs to happen. Show them the more. Point them to Jesus. And Jesus, the life theme is so predominant. We don't have time to get into all of it. We're going to get to Nicodemus in a few weeks, and there's a reason why the teacher of Israel, who should know everything, right, doesn't know the truth, comes in darkness, and then the light of the world, Jesus, tells them how to have life, eternal life. You get to John chapter 8, he proclaims, I am the light of the world. And then in John chapter 9, it's not a coincidence that John then puts a guy who's lived for 38 years in darkness, a blind guy from birth, heals the guy. The religious people are upset. They're the ones that are in darkness because they don't have the truth. At the end of it, the blind guy's going, hey, I'm, I just knew that I was blind. Now I can see. And then he, Jesus says, you worship me. And he's like, who are you? He's like, yeah, I worship you. And then Jesus says, I came so that people who can't see could see and people who think they can see they wouldn't be able to see. And then at the end, the Pharisees say, so interesting, I'm going to put it up on the screen. It says, they say, some of them, the Pharisees near him, heard these things, and they can physically see and say, are we blind? Yeah. That's the answer. Yes, you are. Because you don't realize who he is. Light and darkness. And who is he? The word, light, life. And here's probably my favorite, the Son of God. Verse 14. The word became flesh, pitched his tent with us, We've seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
interesting connection there when Moses in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 33, asks to see a glimpse of God's glory. The characteristics that, that God says when He comes past Him, His abounding love, His mercy, His wrath, could be translated as grace and truth. Jesus reveals the glory, grace, and truth. But he became, he dwelt among us. He put on flesh. He became flesh, it says here. Why? Why did he do that? And yeah, of course, in the last series we talked about so he can sympathize with you so that when you're struggling, he's been through the struggle. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to struggle with lust. He knows what it's like to have, you know, weeping at a funeral. All the things that we go through, he knows because he's experienced it. But there's more than that. He had to be human. Even though our minds couldn't have fathomed God becoming human, he had to. Galatians says it like this. But when the fullness at just the right time had come, God sent forth his son, same son that we're talking about, John chapter 1, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The only way that can happen, not through an animal. Animals aren't born under the law. Angel can't do it. Angels aren't born under the law. God had to become human, the only perfect human, sinless, that ever lived. And he had to be fully man in order to shed his blood because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And all those bulls and goats in the Old Testament, they just pointed to Jesus that was coming. This is temporary until the real sacrifice comes, then he dies on the cross as God and man, because both were necessary. Man, because he's redeeming man. God, because man can't overcome death, and man can't overcome sin. One writer I was reading this week, David Mathis, if you want to look this up, you can just Google it. He talks a great article about how Jesus was fully human in his mind, in his body, in his heart, even in his will, and explains that's why the conversation with God the Father, not my will, but your will, not my human will, but your divine will be done. He says this, Jesus took a human body to save our bodies, and he took a human mind to save our minds. Without becoming man in his emotions, he could not have rescued our hearts. And without having a human will, he could not save our broken and wandering wills. In the words of another smart guy that I can't pronounce, that which, has not, which he has not assumed, he has not healed. So what do we do? Those verses we skimmed by. Yeah, in verse 10, he came in as light. And verse 11, the saddest verse in the Bible, maybe. His own people rejected him. But verse 12 starts with an incredible word, but. It's a contrast word. But. To all and the call is universal. All of us. You are all invited to all who did receive, but most don't. Most do verse 11. They reject. The options are reject or receive. Remake isn't even on the list. That falls underneath reject, by the way. To all who did receive, what does it mean to receive him? Who believed in his name. Okay, what does that mean? And we don't tend to unpack all that, but what it means throughout the Gospel of John is not what we think in America, that if I believe the right truth. There's a reason why when demons say to Jesus, you're the Lord, you're the Son of God, he says, be quiet. They're right. They don't believe. They got the facts, though. Belief is like when he says, I am the bread of life. You hunger? You come to me. I am living water. You're, you're thirsty? You come. I'm your source of satisfaction. To believe in him is to come to him for satisfaction. To believe in him is to come to him. I am the way, the truth, and the life for, to him for life. I want to know the truth, and I'm coming to you, Jesus. Belief looks like going to Jesus. Come and see. And he gave those people that would believe, that would come to him, the right to become something they were not. They're transformed to become children of God. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Jesus made you, he can remake you. He's the creator, he can recreate, but you don't get to make him. So if he showed up, would you recognize him? Father, we come before you today, thankful that you love us, cared for us, sent your son to die for us, to become flesh. Wow, that's unthinkable, and you did it. And then to die, that God would die and defeat death. We wouldn't have thought of any of that stuff had you not done it. You are an amazing God. And there are things when we read the Bible or we come into contact with you that we disagree with, and you are right, and we are wrong, and we are sorry when we've tried to make you fit us rather than becoming like you. I pray for my friends here. Some of them follow you, but realize there's been some things off in who they're following. I pray that you'd bring repentance and change, change of mind, change of heart, change of desire. And there are some that don't even know you. Maybe they know some things about Christianity or the church or things the church says. I pray you give them a deep hunger for you. And I pray as a church that we'd be able to present you, not just through sermons, but through our lives, that we would be light and that people would see your light in us shining through us and they would glorify your Father in heaven that we'd be doing what we're made for rather than making a mess. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.